Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. He's run for governor before and he's trying again. This time, Danbury Mayor Mark Boughton has a Republican endorsement and we're sitting down with him as part of our Meet the Candidates series. The Republican primary ballot is crowded this year. Does Mayor Boughton's experience leading a city appeal to you? Now, what questions do you have for him? We want to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook Live, search for Where We Live, and add your question in the comments below the video stream. Or you can actually join the conversation by calling in 860-275-7266. And you can find us on Twitter, at Where We Live. I want to welcome Mark Bowton into our studio. Thanks for coming in. We know it's been a busy summer for you. It has been, but it's always great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, I had uh, Steve Upsitnik in the other day. On Tuesday, we're going to have Tim Herbst in, just a few of the of the four other candidates that you will be running against on August 14th. Unlike uh, some of them, you have name recognition because you have been a longtime mayor in Danbury, I believe nine terms uh, now. Uh, But tell us again why you want to be governor. I had alluded that this is not the first time that you have tried. Sure. You know, listen, I think that our state uh, is at a crossroads. I think there's uh, where everybody walks around doom and gloom because, you know, that's sort of been the mantra of the last year. Um, I really see opportunity. I mean, this is a great state with great assets, great people, um, and all it takes is a little bit of hard work and pulling people together to develop a consensus about how we move forward and what our, our long-term goals are um, and have all stakeholders at the table to do that. Um, and great things can happen in Connecticut. It's not – yeah, we face severe financial challenges. There's no question about that. But when you look at all the positives that we have in Connecticut, um, this can really be the place that we want to stay, invest, retire, raise a family. And then we've got to – get back to that thinking. So I'm excited to do that, and I'm excited for the opportunity. Uh, We know that you had a health scare in 2017 after Mm -hmm. uh, your doctors discovered a brain tumor. Uh, You had successful surgery at UPMC in Pittsburgh. And I'm curious how that experience impacted your outlook and on what you wanted to accomplish in your career. Again, you've been a longtime mayor. You'd run before. But how did that change your outlook? Well, you know, Lucy, it it does change you. Um, It is... uh, when faced with a you know potentially catastrophic outcome, or when told by doctors, frankly, that you know you got about two and a half months to figure this out, or you know you you could uh, have a stroke, or you know be severely uh, disabled, or frankly die, um, it makes you think. And so you know you do an inventory, a self inventory, self analysis. Did you do everything right that you could? Did you try to do everything right? Not that you have to necessarily do everything right. As long as your heart's in the right place, um, I think you're you're good to go. Um, so I think that and I think the way I look at people has changed me dramatically uh, in terms of ha- going through this process. Um, certainly, I've always been extremely patient. Um, people say that about you even if they don't agree with me, you know, and that's just been my temperament over the years. I have a great sense of humor. Um, I think I do anyways, but you, know, you may not agree, but I think I do. Um, so I try to laugh a little bit more and I try to keep things in perspective. And, um, you know, we were just talking about that outside you know, while we were waiting to come in. And uh, somebody said to me, well, you know, it's, you know, what a headache. And, you know, the, the, basically you're raising the, how difficult it is to run and everything. I said, hey, listen, this is nothing compared to having your doctors walk in and say you've got a you know, brain tuber larger than a lemon in your head. And they don't know what to do. So um, I'm blessed to be alive today. I'm blessed to be here. 
uh, and I really uh, have, gone, have gained a greater appreciation for the people of Connecticut and, and what we can do together, working together. Uh, one of your television ads focuses on uh, your health scare. Is this something that when you are campaigning around the state that people are asking how you're doing or that you are able to be able to run for governor and that um, your health is not going to be an issue if you're elected in November? Yeah, I mean, we have, uh, you know, a clean bill of health from both my neurosurgeon from uh, we're talking about UPMC off the air. You have a little connection to Pittsburgh and um, from my uh, local neurologist in terms of the outcome. And that's fine, but there always is in politics whisper campaigns, and so we want to address that right out of the box that there's nothing wrong with me physically. Uh, I'm in great shape. And look, I always say I do more before 8 o'clock than most people do, all, most candidates do all day. I'm, in addition to running for governor, I'm also running a city of 90,000 people that is complex, is large, and, and has a lot of challenges. So um, I'm proud of my energy and my stamina, and you know I'm able to do everything that needs to be done, and my prognosis is excellent. You know, Fortunately, uh, I didn't have cancer, but uh, you know I did have a tumor that was growing. So um, given all that, uh, I'm ready to go, and I'm excited about the opportunity. I'll run to ask you about uh, several uh, different issues now, and I want to uh, ask our listeners if they want to join us as well. That number again, 860-275-7266 here on Where We Live. You can also find us on Facebook Live today. Add your comment below the video stream. Uh, now, something that you've been getting a lot of attention for, uh, Mayor Bowden, is your uh, proposal in your campaign that if elected, you want to eliminate, phase out the state income tax yes. altogether. Uh, many people want to hear how exactly are you going to do that? Right. So here's the the premise that everybody's got to get used to before we talk about well, what department goes and what department stays. If you believe that government has to stay exactly the same, that the status quo is what we need in Connecticut, then you cannot eliminate the state income tax. You can't do it. If you believe that we are now in the 21st century and we need to design a state government that is reflective of this new century we're living in with these new economics um, and not a government of the 19th century, um, then you can join us and ride along with us because we have a reorganization plan for state government that downsizes and eliminates costs and be- makes us more efficient, coupled to a slow phase out of the income tax over a 10-year period. Both have to happen. Can't have one without the other. So people constantly say, well, you're not going to be able to do any transportation improvements. I go, you're not looking at it comprehensive the way we have. And so um, to understand that, how we're going to do that, you have to understand that um, really comes in three phases. And phase one really is a reduction in the rates right off the bat to send the message across the country that we are open for business and we want people to stay here. Phase two is a reorg plan that will be painful and difficult for legislators in in particular and other uh, agencies that just don't understand what we're trying to do. And then phase three will be there may have to be some constitutional changes uh, to some of the ways in which our government is designed. But the point here is to take advantage of this moment where there's pretty much consensus out there where everybody says, we just can't keep doing what we're doing. Um, now, Connecticut people want progress, but they don't want change. So Land it's, my, of steady habits. Right, it's my job to go out there and to make the argument, not over a period of months or weeks, but maybe a year it'll take to have public hearings and public input and discussion. And there are people out there, state employees, residents that may have really good ideas about things that can be done to help us drive down the cost of government and create more growth. That's the point is to put more money in the economy and uh, have people go out and spend it in restaurants and things like that. 
that will result uh, in being able to do something like eliminate the state income tax. Um, with a gradual uh, reduction, uh, I believe uh, in the past year, the state income tax was ten, raised $10 billion in revenue? About $9.5 billion. Right. So right. how, and when we look at these uh, multi-billion dollar deficits that the state is going to have uh, if you're elected uh, governor um, and you're in office in January, I mean, how do you tackle that plus pay down uh, the billions of dollars in pension liability? Well, you, first of all, again, we're back in that box thinking that government always has to look the way it is because that's the way it is. Um, government will not be the same when I'm governor of the state. Um, we will condense and combine departments. We'll outsource services. We'll utilize uh, our nonprofit uh, uh, partners to be able to deliver social services. We're going to do all of these things to drive down the cost of government. And by doing that, we will spur economic growth. So it's half and half. Half is through efficiencies and being able to cut costs, and the other half uh, is to be able to generate uh, growth by getting people to go out and spend their money, stay here, and invest here. So you do the two same two things together, then you'll be able to start phasing out the income tax very slowly. The, our first budget we've already started working on, um, and we're doing that because you have to put that down in February. You know, So if we're elected in November, you get sworn in in January, four weeks later your budget's down. So we already have a rough cut of what our budget will look like internally, and we eliminate uh, about $400 million out of the state income tax to give everybody a break. But most importantly, the people on the bottom end of the scale um, are g given the largest break initially to be able to give them some relief from paying their bills and being able to use that money to spend it on college as well as um, invest in homes and so forth. Uh, so reductions and in income tax uh, gradually, but what about would you support uh, raising the sales tax? Should no. corporate taxes go up? No. Nope. You don't need to do that. Um, we takes us about $3.5 billion more on a biannual basis to do the very same services that Massachusetts and uh, New York State delivers. So you know right off the bat that there there's a problem in terms of how many employees we have and how many departments we have. Um, so that won't necessarily uh, be necessary to be able to do that. Um, uh, over the long term, um, we'll have some discussions about revenue options as they relate when we get to from, say, 2 percent to zero. That's a discussion that we'll have with the legislature and with the public. And maybe the public might be happy paying 2% uh, income tax and leaving it the way it is and not changing or spreading out the sales tax to apply to other items or, or whatever strategy is out there. I understand uh, the Connecticut Mirror reported there is a commission within uh, the state legislature looking at um, possibly trying to sell off some state assets uh, to help with the pension liability. What's your take on that? Well, that's our idea. So I'm glad we could help that. And we certainly have, you know, depending on who you talk to, the state doesn't know how much property it actually owns. Um, obviously, first we have to do an audit and figure out what's ours and what's not. Um, we have about $12 billion worth of uh, property that we can leverage, whether we do a sale, a lease, you know, where we still own it, we lease it to somebody. Um, we'll be able to generate roughly $700 million uh, if we utilize that properly, property correctly. Um, so there's opportunity there. No question about that. I don't know if we really know how much property we own, and I think we got to start there. And so we're not really sure about what the return would be, but that's something we should be exploring. Uh, before I take some calls, I did want to ask you about, I think phase two is downsizing some of the state yeah. departments. How do you do that when you have labor agreements in place? I think the latest uh, CBAC agreement uh, doesn't expire until 2027. Are your hands tied exactly on where you can cut? Is it going to be largely on social services and education? No. Um, uh, first of all, you know, as a mayor and somebody that's worked uh, diligently on social service issues and, and sort of as a passion of mine, particularly homelessness, um, I, I think that's an area where you really can't 
uh, not deliver services and you can't be partners with, you know, a nonprofit sector as well as uh, local municipalities. Um, but there is opportunity to get more engagement from our nonprofit partners and to spin off some of these things. I also would argue to you that a reorg plan, and this is something that will have to be decided in court, but a reorg plan is different than layoffs. A reorg plan is reorganization. And if it's adopted by the legislature in the next for the next biennium budget, that means that it's not a layoff. It's just a new organization for government, and those employees are not necessarily entitled to bumping rights or to be able to move somebody off of another position somewhere else. I think that will have to be adjudicated in a court, about to be decided in a court, but that's that's our argument. Um, and uh, so we don't necessarily see 2027 as a date that we can't do anything. Um, we're going to have to do something or you're literally going to end up with one state trooper, you know, an entire metro Hartford area uh, doing traffic enforcement because we just won't be able to afford anything else. This is where we live. In studio with me today, Mayor Mark Bowden. He's the mayor of Danbury, also the Republican endorsed candidate uh, for governor. The uh, primary is just three weeks away, August 14th. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Claire is calling from West Hartford. Claire, go ahead with your question. Hi. Um, yes. Um, I'm curious about the the taking away of the income tax, because when I think about that, I think about the disaster of the Kansas experiment. I'm sure the governor um, candidate is aware mm. that the Republicans in Kansas took away the inc- income tax in 2012 and the economy tanked. The credit rating of the state was downgraded. Job creation uh, and, and, and growth lagged far below uh, the national average. Um, it led to serious tax avoidance. And, um, you know, in 2017, uh, they reinstituted the tax almost back to pre uh, reform, reform in quotes, levels because of the disaster it caused. And public education suffered terribly. Now, I know you're thinking of phasing yours in more slowly over time. Is that the way you're going to avoid this disaster? Um, you know, I'm just wondering what models you're looking to to guarantee before we take this drastic measure that it's really going to be the right thing for us and that we will avoid that nightmare that Kansas went through. Thanks. Yeah. I'll, I'll take listen to your answer offline. Sure, and thanks for the question. And you're, you're on point. Uh, Kansas was a disaster because they eliminated it in one year and didn't have a plan to reorganize uh, government. And uh, I think a gentle reduction versus a complete elimination will make it more palatable uh, in terms of making this culture change that we need to make. So I agree with you that you can't do this in one night. That's why ours is a 10-year phase out. And there may be years where there's no reduction in the income tax rate as we pause. Maybe a court case has to be determined. Maybe uh, we don't see the growth that we want to see. So this is why we're taking a very slow and measured approach. But we need to send them the message across the United States of America and the world, really, that this state is serious about reducing costs and serious about reducing the tax liability on our taxpayers. In addition to that, we need a marketing niche. We don't have one. We used to be the place that was cheaper between New York and Boston. That's why people came here. And now we are actually, in some cases, depending on where you live, more expensive to live than New York and Boston. And our rates are higher than Massachusetts is. So um, I think that the opportunity here for us is to have something that's out there that's marketable and saleable and is serious. Does it happen overnight? Absolutely not. That would be a mistake, and, and I would agree with the caller. Uh, earlier, we were talking about Connecticut being the land of steady habits, um, and you're stressing that you want to not be uh, sitting along with the status quo. You want to try new things. Uh, Dan from Andover actually has a good question about regionalization. Dan, go ahead. 
Yes, uh, I'm the chairman of a board of finance in a small town in Connecticut, and I have a really hard time uh, envisioning uh, the state climbing out of its fiscal problems with without consolidating and regionalizing school districts and municipalities because I think we lose a lot of the economies of scale uh, on state spending from municipal aid, and I'd like to know what your thoughts on that matter are. Well, look, I think anytime we regionalize, as long as it's voluntary amongst the communities in the state of Connecticut, that's a good thing. But there are issues where the state needs to step in and make it easier for communities to do this. Uh, Collective bargaining agreements can often be in conflict between cities or towns in terms of certain services that are providing. So um, we have to be able to come up with a way to uh, not whatever savings you get, we don't necessarily just want to give it back to uh, the collective bargaining unit when we're trying to actually give it back to the taxpayers. But there is opportunity there. And I'll give you one real quick example because I know exactly what you're talking about. City of Danbury is growing and we're adding about 300 new students every year. That's equivalent to about an elementary school. So um, we're adding an addition to our high school. We're spending $70 million of which 80% is, is covered by the state of Connecticut. So collectively, we, the state, are spending $70 million to add a new wing for our high school to accommodate what will be about 500 more students. Uh, that'll bring us up to 3,500 students. will be the largest high school in the state as we are right now. Um, not unheard of across the country, but still a very large uh, facility. At the same time, cities and towns around us are losing students, and they are begging for their space to be filled. We would love to be able to offer the opportunity to send some of our students to those other districts on a tuition basis, but the tuition rates are set so high right now, and the state so discourages it that it comes almost impossible to do. So rather than me spend $70 million of, of your money in a new building, wouldn't it be better if I could spend $5 million on tuition to be able to place those students elsewhere in schools that need students, um, and then all of us uh, win in terms of um, being able to save money and keeping, in some cases, schools open that are thinking about closing that you may need later on. Mayor Mark Bouton is in studio with us. We're going to continue our discussion with him here on Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You can join us, too, 860-275-7266, back after a short break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're continuing our Meet the Candidate series today with gubernatorial candidate Mark Bowden. He's been mayor of Danbury since 2002, and this year he received the Republican endorsement in the governor's race. Now, he'll not be, he'll, he will not be the only candidate on the Republican primary ballot August 14th. There's four other names, including Tim Herbst. He joins us on Where We Live next Tuesday. On the Democratic side, Joe Gannum, who petitioned his way onto the ballot, will be in our studios on Monday. But you have a question for Mark Bowden, who's here today. Join us at Six zero two seven five seven two six six. Find us on Facebook Live today. Also, you can tweet us at Where We Live. Uh, Kathy uh, wants uh, to ask follow up to your uh, previous comment, uh, Mayor Bouton, about uh, this phase out of the yep. income tax and the different stages. Um, when you mentioned uh, more engagement with nonprofits, uh, she says, you know, as a nonprofit, we have to pay our employees. If we aren't adequately funded, we're not able to provide needed services to our clients. So she wants to know how you're going to um, how you're going to partner with the state if, if there's not state support for their work as well? Oh, we're going to have to pay them. I mean, you know, we're going to pay them to do uh, many of the services that we're already doing. They could do it more efficiently, quicker. There's studies out there that show hundreds of millions of dollars in savings if we eventually migrate that to that system. We've done that in Danbury. 
where we uh, don't have a Department of Social Services anymore. We just engage our nonprofit community partners to deliver the same service, and they do a better job at it. So um, there absolutely will be money following uh, that. We wouldn't just be asking nonprofits mm -hmm. to take on a load of uh, clients or um, uh, people that they're tracking or working with. We would we certainly want to be partners with them. When I talk about a partnership, it's 50-50. It's not, you know, you do this and we're not doing anything. Um, if you're elected governor, you have to work with the General Assembly. We've seen over recent legislative sessions when they've struggled to balance budgets, they are cutting money, money to nonprofits yeah. such as these. Right. And that's that's the easy. It's, it's not easy for the nonprofit. It's not easy for the people they serve. But it's easy for the legislature because that'll get the most people upset and will put the most pressure uh, on uh, that body as well as um, the governor's office to do something about it, right? So when I talk about us all liking progress but not wanting to change, um, even our legislature and our legislators are going to have to be willing to take some heat to make the tough decisions um, because what we've done over the last eight years is literally kicked the can down the road and we were promised that wouldn't happen and that's what happened because people can't make the tough decisions. Look, as, as mayor of a city of 85,000 people, I have to make tough decisions every day. And it doesn't always please everybody. And uh, people don't necessarily like them. Um, but you have to make them uh, because you have to look out for the greater good of the entire community. And so um, that goes the same thing for uh, people that are out there serving in different capacities that just don't want to ever deliver bad news. Sometimes you have to do that. Um, so I don't necessarily think a, a reorg is bad news or, or partnering up with nonprofit or the faith-based community, which also should be a strategic partner for us. Um, but I do think uh, when we fail to make those decisions, we face the crisis that we're facing now. And, you know, Ben Barnes has said it himself. We lurch from budget crisis to budget crisis. And it's, it's a horrible way to do business. Lydia's calling from Ansonia. Lydia, go ahead with your question. Hi. Um, thank you for taking my call. First, I want to make a comment about um, – private sectors delivering uh, services for the, um, if you talk, are you talking about instead of the Department of Social Services? I'm kind of confused. Um, sure. And the other thing is this whole, you know, I, I lived in Maryland and D.C. and all these other places where they don't have a state tax. And that was nice. I'm originally from Connecticut. I lived out of the state for 20 years. That was nice. Now I'm paying state taxes. Yeah, it's more out of my income. But you know what? If the taxes are spent in um, an efficient way, then I'll have a problem with it. I'm a teacher. You know, the schools are underfunded. I was at Department of Social Services the other day, and those workers are completely overworked. So I want to know, if you phase out the income tax, what are you going to replace it with? And you've probably been answering that all along, but I still haven't found a I, I haven't heard a solid answer and what I'm suspecting because I also am hearing rumblings about tolls being put in back in Connecticut. Is that what you guys are going to do? Thank you, Lydia. So uh, lots of different questions for Lydia. So first off, what's your stance on tolls? Uh, I oppose tolls and I will strap myself to I-84 before I let a toll be put on this in, the, in this state. And she'd also talked about funding for public schools. Uh, she says that certain revenue, if it's, if it's used right, then she's she have a problem with it. Problem paying. Yeah, and I think most people agree with that. I think they're willing to pay their fair share to deliver a service, um, and I certainly don't oppose to that. But I'm going to tell you, when you look at the evidence in front of us, since 1991, since we opposed, imposed the state income tax, there has been zero economic growth in the state of Connecticut. 
And since 2004, there's been negative economic growth in the state of Connecticut. There are nine states in the United States of America that do not have a state income tax. And every single one of those states is far surpassing and exceeding economic output from the states that do, that are high-tax states. You know, I was a teacher, too. I taught 14 years, and I'm, you know, eligible for a state teacher's pension. I just want to share that, at full disclosure. But I got to tell you something. A lot of my friends are now retiring, who I taught with, and they're not staying in Connecticut. They're going to non-income tax states that don't also uh, tax their uh, pension that's coming in. So the fact of the matter is, is we're spending all this money to give people pensions, and then they leave and go somewhere else where they don't have to pay a tax. So I, I just tell you that um, we need to get on the same competitive playing field as those other places. And whether it's a complete elimination or a phase down, however that works, um, it's the only way in which we're going to be able to send that message out. Uh, why not tolls? We're talking about what other states have or what else uh, other states are doing that um, is attracting uh, some residents to move. But lots of states have tolls, and they're able to use that, that revenue uh, to help with services or pay for much-needed transportation projects. We keep hearing the Special Transportation Fund will be going broke. Why not tolls? Well, the Special Transportation Fund is going broke because we keep spending money on non-transportation items out of it to balance the budget, right? So all this is inter interconnected. But the problem with tolls is that not only will you pay uh, an income tax and not only will you pay an estate tax and a gift tax and all these other taxes, you're also now going to be added another $700 million tax to pay for road improvements that you've already paid for in the form of the highest gas tax or one of the highest gas taxes in the nation. So you're actually being asked to pay twice for this work. And this is, drives to, the, to an issue of culture within the legislature that um, these are not the times and this is not the time to be creating more programs or trying to fund more programs. This is the time to be able to uh, redefine and, and prioritize where our spending is. You know, we have needs and we have wants. We need to fix our roads. We want the new baseball field, but that's got to wait until we fix our roads and our bridges and, and rail and those kinds of things. So by adding tolls, you're simply giving the legislature more opportunity to tax you, and they will spend that on everything but the roads. Uh, they will figure out how not to use it for roads, I guarantee you, and we'll be right back here having the same conversation about we're in this death spiral. What are we going to do? Chris is calling from New Haven. Chris, go ahead with your question. Yes, uh, thank you for taking my call. Um, I, you know, Mr. Bowen, I'm very, very skeptical about cutting your way out of a deficit and by cutting taxes it, it it's going to lead to prosperity um you've already mentioned that you want to reorganize state government so that means you're going to try to get around the the, the seaback agreement and basically you're going to put people out of work um the other thing too is i'm concerned about something's going to give you're going to cut the income tax, but either a sales tax is going to skyrocket or that burden is going to be dumped on the cities and towns and property taxes are going to raise. So I'm curious to get your response to that. Thank you. It, it does no good to increase a tax burden um, while cutting one tax. That, that, that makes you know really uh, no sense. But look, for all those opposed to doing anything, we can just keep doing what we're doing. And that death spiral is going to continue. It's going to get faster. People, the people that can afford to leave are going to leave. And the people that uh, can't afford to leave are going to be stuck here. So your cost of government is going to be driven even higher. And, you know, we can continue what we're doing, which is in a negative uh, growth path. Or we can say we can't keep doing the same thing over and over again. Me, I'm a person that I learn after a few times that if I keep doing the same thing, I'm going to get the same results. So this is a time where we can look at this open window of about 18 months, I think, where people are saying we've got to figure out a new path forward. 
and make some choices and some ideas about what to do. Um, there's no question that it doesn't do any good to push costs down to municipalities, but I think we need to free municipalities up as a mayor to be more entrepreneurial, uh, to be more um, to be able to broaden the revenue base in any way that they think is appropriate. Uh, and to be able to work closely with state government and distributing the money that we do have. Does that mean, I know uh, CCM has long proposed um, having the state give them more uh, flexibility to raise their own uh, sales tax. Is that a possibility? Well, I wouldn't be in favor of that now because of the labor uh, requirements that are in the state of Connecticut right now. So if we can get some movement on things like collective bargaining and um, other other areas within uh, labor and put management back in charge of our workforce, then we might have that discussion. But as a mayor who finds it almost impossible to terminate employees who have engaged in absolute outrageous conduct um, and is constantly overruled by the State Board of Mediation and Arbitration, I can tell you for a fact that the pendulum has swung too far uh, in favor of labor. And so until we were able to get those adjustments and corrections, I would be concerned about allowing any more taxing ability for anybody. But that's another discussion as part of this large piece of uh, uh, pile of, of discussions that we have to have. Uh, again, you can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. There was one question our previous caller asked that we weren't able to get to, uh, Lydia, and she w- she wants to hear more about this idea of reorganization. Mm-hmm. She said she had asked specifically, does privatization mean that you're going to get rid of, say, the Department of Social Services? I, I don't say get rid of. I think it's a ca- question of, of managing uh, the, uh, the caseload. She, she did say that the workers are overloaded, and I can tell you they are because I've talked to them. So the fa- to the extent that we can bring in our, uh, the nonprofit sector to handle some of those duties and take the load off of those employees will mean that through attrition over a period of years, you can eventually reduce the workforce to simply be a, a management situation where they're watching cases and conferring with the nonprofit versus having to do home visits and other things to ensure that uh, our state statutes and laws are, are followed as it relates to things like children and elderly residents and all of the programs that they provide for. So uh, in other areas like the Department of Motor Vehicles, it's right for outsourcing. And, and we ought to get out of the retail business of trying to get somebody a driver's license. I know that the auto dealers are going to be able to do registrations, but there's already blocks about how to do that. Um, but in terms of you know having to stand in line for three and a half hours to get your license renewed is absurd. So it's a business we shouldn't be in. So let's let AAA do it. Let's do an RFP. Let's get the best cost, the lowest cost, and away we go. This is where we live. Uh, Mark Bouton is with us. He's a Republican-endorsed candidate for governor. He's a longtime mayor of Danbury. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Also find us on Twitter at where we live. Uh, we're running short on time, so I'm going to try to get through some of these questions quickly. Brendan on Twitter asks, uh, do you have any regrets uh, while a mayor of Danbury of deputizing uh, the police force there to work with Immigration Customs Enforcement or ICE? Uh, no, I don't. Um, and the reason I don't is that, uh, first of all, we didn't deputize the police force. There were two detectives who received specific training uh, in how to um, uh, enforce immigration law, and they were allowed access to certain databases. And under that program, uh, we arrested 22 people that were engaged in serious criminal activity, exploitation of children. We had one guy who had seven DWIs that had ignored a deportation order. These are people that you don't want walking among us. We even had a murderer from Eastern Europe that we found. Uh, that was living in Danbury. So it was a good program, was discontinued by, the, by President Obama. Um, it's been reinstituted by President Trump, I believe, but I don't think there's a training protocol yet put in place. But when used properly, it's, it's, a, it's a good asset and force multiplier uh, for our police department. 
Um, you've called uh, Connecticut a sanctuary state because of some of the policies that uh, Governor Malloy has put in place, including the Trust Act, um, how uh, the state DOC um, also works or um, responds to detainers that ICE may p- uh, place on individuals. I'm just curious if elected governor, what would happen to some of these policies that um, that have been put in place? And um, how would you, uh, I guess, work with communities, cities that are considered sanctuary cities where they don't look to uh, try to help round up um, people here that are living here illegally? Yeah. Well, first, nobody rounds up people, right? So that kind of language is loaded language that isn't really what happens. Even ICE prioritizes and always has prioritized criminal activity or people who have multiple deportation orders that have ignored them. So I just want to be clear about that. I couldn't get reelected with 65 percent of the vote in a city like Danbury, which is 40 percent Latino, if I didn't have strong relationships with the Latino community in general. And, and they understood where I was coming from. So um, in terms of working with ICE, uh, when there's a federal bench warrant, or when there's a detainer, detainer agreement, as long as it doesn't violate the Trust Act, which was passed by the General Assembly, then we would honor that. Um, the Trust Act I have reservations about. I probably would not have voted for it in, in the legislature if I was there uh, because I think it does uh, set up sort of a sanctuary state policy. The fact of the matter is, is that cities, towns, counties in other states can't act as individual immigration uh, 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 law and, uh, interpretations. And in other words, they can't decide what they want the policy to do. Only the federal government can do that. And if people are unhappy with the federal government's policies or how long it takes to get in the country legally and process the tons of paperwork, then they need to put pressure on the federal government to develop a system that's fair, it's comprehensive, and it's easy to understand. As governor, I will do just that. I will advocate for a system that makes a lot more sense than what we're doing right now, splitting up families and things like that. Do you support uh, legalizing recreational marijuana in Connecticut? Um, you know, I have uh, reservations about it. Uh, I worked with children for 14 years. Not, you know, there were kids that, you know, particularly young people that could that use marijuana and then never went back to it again. But there was a gateway. It was a gateway for some kids. So I, I'm worried about with the opioid crisis, are we sort of opening up a door for another avenue for people to get addicted? I'm not necessarily to marijuana, but to things down the road. On the other hand, um, I also recognize that there are states around us, Vermont, Massachusetts, now Canada, you know, it's not a state, it's a country, obviously, but and New York is kicking around the idea, Rhode Island's kicking around the idea. So it's probably a conversation we're going to have to have. But right now, if a, uh, a bill was put on my desk, I'd probably veto it. Um, but I'm, opening, I'm open to listening more about the issue. I understand you and other Republican candidates skipped a climate change forum held recently. Um, If elected governor, um, you know as well as anyone, our state, particularly the shoreline, faces uh, challenges with, we've seen it in the past with uh, big storms and we'll probably see it in the future. Just curious uh, what you think about like how, what are the ways that Connecticut can help mitigate um, some of the effects of these big storms that have happened and, and rising sea level? Yeah, there's no question we should be taking common sense approaches towards uh, things like rising sea level and even big storm water management, things like that. Um, and I certainly am supportive of that. Um, all of our candidates, we weren't sending a message that we skipped this event. We were at another uh, forum that had been scheduled prior to the uh, climate forum. So certainly we can continue those discussions. But I will say I will not support any uh, bill, law, or idea that would put us at an economic disadvantage to the rest of the world or to other states. Um, Connecticut can't cure uh, the issue of climate change by itself. We can do our part. I love sustainable energy. I love solar, which I'm very intrigued by. Um, Danbury is host to fuel cell energy, one of the largest fuel cell manufacturers in the world, which is clean power. 
Um, we're going to cut the ribbon on a brand new facility in the next couple of weeks. So I'm intrigued by all those things, but it's got to be competitive economically for us to be able to embrace them. Uh, we had a lot of callers, not enough time. Uh, one did want to hear more about how, well, what policy did you put in place to end mass incarceration? I, you know, I, I, I think that the, the second chance uh, initiative, if you will, um, while well-intentioned in many ways, um, we certainly can extend pieces of that. I also am concerned, though, about um, more recently, I'm hearing that uh, you know some of the drug changes we made are problematic because they're engaging younger people now to sell drugs because knowing that they're not susceptible to being tried as an adult, therefore now it won't be a felon. So people are very cagey about how they how they're out peddling their products. So I'm concerned about that, and I'm concerned about eliminating the drug fee zones around schools. Um, you know, I just I'm old school that way. I, I was a teacher. I don't think we should have a pusher sitting out by the gate, waiting to sell something to somebody when they come out. So. Um, I think there's discussions to have there. I think there is an issue with mass incarceration, and, and I'm willing to listen. We're going to have to leave it there. Mark Bouton, again, is mayor of Danbury, also the Republican-endorsed candidate for governor. We appreciate your time. Thanks so much for coming Thanks, in. Thanks, Lucy. Appreciate it. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up next, we're going to hear from two political scientists about uh, some of what uh, Mark Bouton said uh, during our interview and his chances uh, with the primary just three weeks away. And you can join us, too. Find us on Facebook Live today. Search for Where We Live. Also on Twitter, at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, what do Manny Santos, Rich DuPont, and Ruby Corby O'Neill have in common? Yes, they're all Republicans. They're also vying for Connecticut's 5th Congressional District seat. On the next Where We Live, we'll sit down with the candidates and learn more about the issues central to their campaigns. And we want to hear from you, too. That's coming up tomorrow on Where We Live. Now, today we just heard from Republican-endorsed candidate for Governor Mark Bowden. And for some analysis, two political scientists join us in studio. I want to welcome back to the show Dr. Bilal Siku, Associate Professor of Political Science at Hillier College at the University of Hartford. Hi again. Hey there. And also Dr. Jonathan Wharton, Assistant Professor of Political Science and Urban Affairs at Southern Connecticut State University. And this note, uh, also he's political director for Kurt Miller, the GOP-endorsed candidate for Connecticut State Comptroller. But for in today's capacity, he's just here to talk about the gubernatorial race. Thanks for coming in again, Jonathan. Thank you, Lucy. I appreciate it. All right. So let's break down uh, some of what uh, Mayor uh, Mark Bouton said uh, during the interview. Specifically, a lot of people still want more details on this idea of gradually reducing the income tax when we have a multi-billion dollar deficit it's in our future. Bilal, you first. Yeah, I think this is my third one I've sat through. And, and you know, each one I'm going to walk away with more, 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 and I don't get more. But I get enough to wet the palate. And I think you know, there were some interesting things that came out of this. I mean, I think this discussion about the eliminating or reducing the state income tax is one of the most interesting things to hear the various candidates talk about it. I just can't see how you can cut about $9.5 billion and, um, you know, figure this out in terms of being able to run this state. I think Bowden has laid out some ideas about the tax cut, but I think at the end of the day, we're talking about dramatic cuts to state workers. He danced around that issue, but I think that has, has to be something that if he's going to do this, he'll have to do, which will put him at odds with state workers. They pay taxes. They buy stuff in the state as well, and so we can't look at them as just simply being enemies. 
Jonathan, uh, your take, again, uh, a lot of skeptics about this idea to get rid of the income tax. And uh, we heard him, again, talk about uh, the CBAC agreement and even alluding to maybe some of those agreements would need to be worked out in court. Well, as Bilal mentioned, I mean, some of those state employees include me. Uh, A <laughs> <laughs> little self-interest yeah. Well, you know, you know it's, 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 it's interesting. It's fascinating um, because, you know, this is an issue. And it's something actually that Mayor Mark Boughton has been – this is a big mantra – is dealing with the income tax and doing away with it. He's been talking about this from the very beginning of getting rid of it. Um, and John Rowland also absolutely, I was about to say, John Rowland too. Actually, John Rowland and I used to debate about it <laughs> years ago. Um, you know, it, it sounds great on paper, but as Bilal said, it's a lot to fill in that gap. And I'm a little bit concerned about that myself. Personally, I would love to see it done as well. But if you know some of the candidates, they're bringing it up too on the Republican side, especially. They're introducing it. They're discussing about doing away with it. But it's a matter of over how many years. Is it going to be eight, ten? You know, there are the different differences between the years and these candidates. And they're really making a big issue and a big push to do this now. I think it's just a great, you know, gain attention. And get more voters on their side. Right. And at 10 years, he'd be in, what, his, sec- his third term if right. he was able to do that, which, again, stretches it out. And I think it's, it's really a, it's a great talking point. And I mm-hmm. think it appeals to the, the base of the Republican Party who hate taxes and the state who talk all the time about moving out of the state, moving to South Carolina, moving to Florida for no taxes or low taxes. But the reality of it is, is that I just don't think that this is a workable idea. If elected, what would his relationship be with labor, given what he has said? That's an interesting question as well. I mean, he talks uh, and dances very softly around that issue, and I think all of the candidates have done that. You know, if you're proposing to cut $3.5 billion or whatever billion, you know, that you want to cut and reduce taxes and shift and re- reorganize, cut agencies, cut workers, and, and bring in nonprofits, uh, sell state property, at the end of the day, the 800-pound gorilla is the state workers and what do you do with the state workers, what do you do with the pension plan? And I think all of the Republicans, even though they won't say it, the reality is is that they're going to have to dramatically cut state workers, which will put them at odds with labor. Uh, Jonathan, I wanted to ask you, I'd mentioned several times that uh, Mark is one of four other, uh, f- among, yes. one among five, there's four other people he's running against uh, August 14th. How, how do Republicans feel about Mark Boughton? Uh, obviously conservative in some sense, right? right? But then moderate in others. Can you talk a little bit about where he stands on those social issues that might uh, stir some people up? So it's interesting. Marijuana legalization. Great example. We were kind of chuckling in the back because I didn't know his stance. <laughs> and I'm a little embarrassed to say that, especially as more of a libertarian side person. And I know a lot of younger people are concerned about that as an issue. It's also maybe one that could be a taxable area as well, you can imagine, compared to the other states. I would also say gun control. That's a sticking point for the mayor. Um, and so that's interesting to see that, you know, there's some division internally within the party about that. Tell us more about his stance on gun control. So he is supportive of, of stronger restric- uh, restrictions on firearms. Absolutely. Especially in the wake of Sandy Hook. Mm. And of course, as, as, as most people know, Tim Herbst got the support from, you know, uh, many of the gun control supporters. Uh, excuse me, um, uh, gun... Oh gun rights. Gun rights. I can't believe I flipped that around. <laughs> so um, it's too early for the morning for me. But, you know, th- this is something that is an issue internally within the party. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I think Peter Lamont was such a successful candidate before the convention, since he came so close to getting that in the first, you know, after the first ticket and going for the second ticket. Um, so I, I'm kind of intrigued to see the internal divisions within the party uh, in terms of where this will lay out before the primary, because we are very divided in the party. And uh, I think it's partly because of a lot of these issues. 
And given uh, the small uh, percentage of people who show up on August 14th, you've got five candidates to choose from. It's not a done deal for Mark Batten. Oh, by no uh, way is it a done deal. I I think what's interesting about that recent poll that came out is that while he certainly has a plurality of voters, a majority of Republican voters prefer someone else. And so he's got a lot of work to do. Certainly his numbers will probably go up as the front runner when election day comes around. But then going into the general election, he's got to raise those numbers and figure out how to connect with those people who have different ideas about issues like gun control, issues like legalization of marijuana. You know, one of the things Jonathan and I were were sort of also excited about as someone, both of us teach urban politics, was this Mm. discussion about regionalization. Yes. Uh, We think that that's an idea that is uh, needs to Connecticut needs to get back to once we got rid of state you know county governments and so it was really uh, good to hear him talk about and support the idea of finding regional solutions to some of these challenges cities face and I think that helps him out in the end because he's he's a mayor he's been there for years and so he's very familiar with that as a topic that kind of stands out compared to the other candidates I've lived in Connecticut now eleven years and you know. <laughs> Everyone always, I feel like regionalization gets talked about, but how do you actually get action on this? Uh, you change, you know, nutmeggers' minds. <laughs> <laughs> this is a land of steady habits. It's not going to be very easy. We really do like our home rule. We live for it. We like 169, yeah. you know, fiefdoms. Yeah. This is exactly what makes Connecticut, Connecticut. We are probably more New England than most New Englanders for this very reason. We want that control. But I also think it grows out of some of those other race and class tensions that we have mm. in our state. I mean, I think issues Absolutely. around education, for sure. example, which is the, again, as my metaphor, the 800-pound gorilla comes out again. That's one of the big issues. And if you are thinking regionally about cutting costs, certainly sharing education costs is one of those things. And I think that's when people claim, you know, their home rule and, and argue vociferously against. But you see, this would stand out, I think, for a mayor because – the argument could be said with somebody like Mayor Mark, hey, you know, I've done this before. I've negotiated with the municipalities. Well, how would that work with the business candidates? Right. They would know how the degree of all that negotiation. So this this would help him out, I think. He really needs to make that pitch right. a little bit more, if you ask my opinion. Yeah, I think so, too. And I, th- I know we showed on time, but the thing that I also found interesting was his ideas about mass incarceration. I thought he was wrongheaded about the this idea that drug-free zones are somehow a good I think, you know, when we think about mass incarceration, we think about disparities in our criminal justice system. The idea of being able to stand inside of a city, sell drugs, and not be within a thousand feet of, of, of some something that will enhance the charges against you is just practically impossible. But in rural areas, it isn't the same. And so as a result of that, getting rid of those drug-free zones, I think, is a good thing in terms of really addressing some of the inequities in our criminal justice system. So I was very disappointed by that answer. Um, if uh, Mayor Boughton wins the primary, uh, Jonathan, um, how will his uh, previous uh, stances and history with immigration enforcement could that hurt him uh, in the general election, especially when you look at uh, the Democrats also as well, but uh, many unaffiliated voters have to make a choice? This is a very touchy subject. It's already a touchy subject at the national level. So imagine what it would be at the state level, especially for a race like this one. You know, And I'm coming from New Haven, which is obviously a sanctuary city. And so there are a lot of internal divisions even down that area about that. Um, you know, It's going to have to come to the forefront. And it's a matter of how that's going to be handled. Um, And, you know, one of the things that's been said over and over again is that when it comes to immigration issues, this is a federal issue. So how much involvement can really local government, let alone state government, have in all this? It's got to be one of these areas where the federal government's got to step in. It's got to be advocated to provide for some reforms. 
But there's got to be a better way of streamlining this process and having the federal government be the one to step up as opposed to what could happen at the state level or even local level. Bilal? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, you know, his city has been at, you know, one of the key cities, you know, nationally and, and gotten national attention for some of the problems mm-hmm. that that city has faced around this issue. I think, you know, if Dan you think... Danbury 11. So right. these were 11 Ecuadorian laborers. There are questions of whether the city police uh, worked with ICE to, to arrest, I won't say round up, but right. <laughs> arrest uh, these Ecuadorian day laborers. There was a settlement. The city had to pay out $400,000. Exactly. And so, again, you know, that... You know, for, for our state, a small state like we are, um, that city has stood out in, on, with regard to those issues. But I think it also raises a larger question. If the Republican Party is thinking about expanding and reaching out to the Latino community, this is certainly one of those issues that would be a, a way to reach out to that community. And, you know, certainly his position does not um, really help, I think, him within the Latino community. Uh, Jonathan, uh, when we had uh, Steve Upsitnik on the other day, we heard from some listeners um, who said that, uh, you know, they really can't, they feel they can't vote for a Republican because of Donald Trump. Yes. How do, how do, how do they get, pa- how will uh, someone like Mark Bowden get past that, that hump, even though we're talking about uh, D.C. policy, but it could impact him? Well, you know, he's made it a record and said it over and over again. He voted for his dog. He wrote in his dog. He did not <laughs> write in, he did not vote for Donald Trump. Uh, quite frankly, I didn't vote for Donald Trump. So you, know, you do have some Republicans out there, like myself, who, who are concerned and frustrated about his leadership. Um, and so uh, that's not surprising. Somehow, though, he has to also work out with the party base, who are the Trump loyalists. This is going to be a very difficult bridge to build. How do you bring in, we can't forget how many independents and affiliated voters there are in Connecticut. There are way too many. So how do you draw on those people who wouldn't be Trump supporters and then those who are part of the base of the Republican Party who would be? That's, that's a difficult dance. Um, and so whoever this, you know, with, with somebody like Mayor Mark doing this, it's, he, that's why he's, he's a good centrist in that respect, maybe balancing that out. I'm hoping he will be at least. Yeah, it'll be interesting because I think as we get closer and closer to November, more and more dollars from out of the state will yes. come into the state to try to influence. It's a wide open seat and it's it's a very competitive seat. Um, you know, no, no candidate has a lock on this at all. And I think you're right about how do you appeal to independents? How do you bring them into this conversation? What are the issues that they care about? Um, so um, he's got a lot of work to do. I think all of the candidates have a lot mm-hmm. of work to do, but he certainly is uh, well positioned being the front runner at this point and um, the likely winner of the and Republican name primary. Name and name recognition. He's got that. Absolutely. I want to thank Dr. Jonathan Wharton, Assistant Professor of Political Science and Urban Affairs at Southern Connecticut State University. Thank you, Jonathan. And Dr. Bilal Saku, Associate Professor of Political Science in Hilliard College at the University of Hartford. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathangel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Special thanks to digital producer uh, Carlos Mejia and to our Where We Live uh, listeners and viewers today. Thank you.